And she said, I don't have a stepdad, but I want one now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know you're right on time because you are the one that hit the play button. So I'm so glad you're here for season four, episode seven of Green Room Door. I'm Dave Trout. This is a podcast where we talk one-on-one with artists to get to know more about the heart behind the music. And we're in for quite a treat today. We have an extended conversation with exceptional singer-songwriter Anthony Quails. He hails from Chattanooga, Tennessee. You're going to get to know him and his music a bit more. And, um, you know, this, the name of the show is Green Room Door because we record a lot of interviews in artist green rooms. And we sort of did this time um, because Anthony played a concert at Gallagher Guitars in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And I met up with him there and his green room and the place we recorded was the actual factory where they make the guitars. It was one of the coolest places to record a podcast. Um, So that was a fun memory. Now, the the only kind of confession here is that it definitely is a memory because we actually recorded this conversation over a year ago. I don't think there's too many things that are outdated um, in this conversation other than the fact that uh, the world was about to change. We recorded this the last day of February 2020. And, um, and little did we know a few weeks, couple weeks later, um, everything shut down, including Gallagher guitars, um, you know, and everybody was quarantining and, uh, and it actually kind of changed our plans for when we were releasing certain podcasts. And so this interview sort of got pushed off and off and off. And finally, today's the day we're releasing this interview with Anthony and I'm so excited to share it with you. Uh, And before we get into the conversation, let's hear a little bit of his music. This is from his uh, 2016 song he released called Life is a Sea. Here's a clip of that before we start the conversation. Yeah, I live in the northwest uh, Georgia area, probably about 30 minutes south of Chattanooga. I have, uh, of course, me and my wife, and then I have two daughters. Uh, one just turned 20 at the 1st of February, and then my mm. youngest daughter, she'll be 19 in September. Nice. Yeah. I- I'm interested to know, you know, when did you start writing songs, 
And and what <laughs> and what were your earliest songs about? Horrible songs. <laughs> I did a um, when I first started doing, and my wife was teasing me about this this morning before I drove up. Um, we were talking about doing music. You know, as far as started. I always sang growing up. I remember I was in the first grade, and we moved to a new school, and my music teacher was asking people to sing, and I'm this little guy who has a really high, squeaky voice, and <laughs> she uh, she has me come up and sing, and that was the first time I sang in front of anybody. And I remember that was the, probably the most scared I'd ever been, but that positive affirmation was just like there. So I sang all the way up, but, you know, when you're a guy and you already have a high tenor voice, before you hit puberty, it's like a first soprano kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it it embarrassing. Yeah. And yeah. so when I hit puberty, my voice changed. I quit singing because mm. I was like, that's my out. Of course, the only songs I was singing were songs that were like Southern gospel, and I hated those. So I was just like, <laughs> I don't want to sing those anyways. This was like an easy out. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but I started writing songs probably about a year and a half, two years later. And then they were, they were story songs. I always kind of just gravitated toward like the James Taylor and mm. John Denver, you know, Jim Croce, those story songs. Because my dad's a minister, and he was a, is a great storyteller. And mm. so that's kind of where I picked it up from. But that's what I always gravitated toward. And um, I kind of got away from that for a while, and then I came back to it probably about a decade ago. And just I really enjoy that, that aspect of telling something that may not be your story, but it could be something you, you may relate to. Mm. And um, I really I, I spent the first 10 years doing music from 2000, late 90s, 99, 2000, to 2010, still trying to figure out writing songs. And I really got serious, probably about 2009 or 10, I got serious about songwriting and figuring out how to write songs that were mm. listenable. So somewhere in, somewhere after that point in the, in the 2010 decade, um, uh, you, uh, you kind of got connected with the people at Renew the Arts. That, yeah, that was like the, that's the most incredible story because it, it came full circle. It was really cool. So I have uh, music on SoundCloud. I think a lot of artists do, and I was just yeah. putting songs up there, and it was nothing of the songs that I do now, hmm. none of them. And uh, Michael Minkoff, who uh, at the time was head of it was Nehemiah, the Nehemiah Foundation for Cultural Renewal, was, and that's like a, such a mouthful. Yeah. Um, I say, I get this random message on SoundCloud through their email platform, and he says, "Hey, I, I kind of like what you do. This is what we do," and he laid it out there. Hmm. And of course, for all I knew, he was a Nigerian prince who was wanting me to, you know, he's, <laughs> being, your social security he's, being, number. he's being deposed. <laughs> so I just, I took it as, you know, as probably not anything yeah. more than a grain of salt. But he said, you know, would you, I like this specific song. Would you send me the, the, the stems for it and I can mix it for you and show you what we do. Mm. And they had a little project studio down in, um, in Sugar Hill, Georgia, um, right outside Atlanta. And he was like, you know, this is what we do for artists. We sponsor artists like you. They're probably not going to be marketable. And we give them an opportunity to make records that they want to make mm. at no charge, no strings attached. Well, you know, anybody who says no strings attached, there's always strings attached. Yeah. Um, I have found there are no strings attached. Mm. It's the most wonderful relationship and, and community with mm. those guys. And so I ended up, I was in the middle of, um, in, in talks with another guy about signing a publishing deal. And I really was uneasy about working with someone who says there's no strings attached and I don't really know you. Yeah. And I knew the publisher. I'd known him for over a decade. And he had told me, he said, I'd like to sign you as a staff writer. And I had no idea what that meant other than, hey, I'll get to write songs and maybe somebody will want to record them. And I went, but he did tell me, he says, I'm not comfortable with you working with those guys. Huh. And he was just kind of looking out for me because he's the same age as my oldest brother. They went to school together. So it was kind of, he was really trying to be cautious for me because I wasn't being probably as cautious as I should have been. So ended up, I started writing with him. Well, I, I ended up, 
writing some really some songs I really enjoyed, and I did a live record, um, probably about in two, at the end of 2012, and released it in 2013. And so I'm thinking, what is my next project going to be? And it just so happened I was hosting an open mic, and two these these two guys came in, and they were part of a band that was sponsored by what is now Renew the Arts. Mm. And it was actually, it was Justice Stout and mm-hmm. uh, Jesse Murray. Mm, yeah. <laughs> they came and they, they performed as a duo called Man Alive. And they were both either students or had just graduated from Bryan College. And so I saw them and they were outside talking. And I went out there and I said, I have to ask you a question. I said, how well do you know? Are you still fam- affiliated with the Nehemiah Foundation? He said, yeah. We're st-. I said, is it legitimate? He said, yeah, it's legitimate. He goes, actually, I'm related to Michael. And so mm. that's how the relationship came full circle. So I, I messaged Michael. I had an idea for Before the Bright Lights. That was like, I love Prairie Home Companion. I love radio theater. Mm-hmm. I always love radio theater. If I could ever do a record where I have a combination of these story songs, sound effects, and just, you know, to me, that would be the end of all. I, I would be happy. I would die happy. Mm. And uh, I approached Michael and I said, Would you want to work together again? And he said, Tentatively, yes. Let me check with Justice and see. Because at that time, I think Justice was more involved with the foundation other than just being a sponsored band. And he uh, came back to me and said, yeah. And so in January of 2014, February of 2014, we started working on Before the Bright Lights. And it was, and it just kind of everything snowballed from there. And um, we finished the record, and, uh, and it was fantastic. It introduced me to you. And, um, and so when we got ready to do this next record, um, it was kind of like a no-brainer. And they came in and, and really offered a different type of support this time. Instead of running the, the, the pledge, can, pledge campaign or anything like that, what they did was they came in and offered their services, and um, and Michael, uh, he was he was actually did all the per- percussion and did the drums on there, and then he stayed in and, and he helped engineer and, and produce mm. the record. So yeah, uh, it's a good relationship because it was it kind of it gave me an it, it really opened my eyes as an adult of what will real community is within the body of, of Christ, mm-hmm. um, people that love you warts and all. Yeah, and so that's the long story for, for the question you asked. No, that's good. That's so, really good. But it's I've, I've been very blessed uh, through this record. I've gotten to become really, really close with Michael. Yeah. Um, when we did the first campaign to launch uh, before the bright lights, we we launched the campaign and we didn't hit the goal, and I felt like an utter failure. Mm. I mean, I really I felt like I let them down. I'm like, you guys invested all this money, and really they had already paid for the record. It was to recoup those it was recoup costs, those costs yeah. but also put those into other projects yeah. so not only did i feel guilty for them not recouping their costs but i felt guilty for all these artists that i don't even know that they're trying to you know mm-hmm. help with and i was really at a low point and they came back and i'll never forget justice called me and and as an adult and i've been a believer for years but this was the first time as a an adult and as a believer i was not i could not be self-sufficient and I like being self-sufficient. I'm probably sure most yeah. people out there that listen to your podcast can relate. We like being self-sufficient as believers because we're in control. Yeah. And when we don't have control, we feel like it's utter chaos. Yeah. And I think that's where God uses us the most is, is in those spots. Mm. So um, Justice called me the next day and he said, how do you feel? And I said, I feel horrible. <laughs> he said, well, here's what we want to do. We want to relaunch the campaign for five days. We're going to eat all of our costs. We just want to make enough money to put the record out mm. because we love you. Mm. And and so I told Justice, I said, that's the first time that I actually saw God's grace fleshed out in front of me. Wow. Okay, so your new album is called The Man I Thought I'd Never Be, <laughs> be yeah. right? So before we, before we kind of 
dive too deep into that. Tell tell me about the making of the album, like how you approached even in the pre-production of it, mm-hmm. how you kind of approached the you know, what you wanted to communicate, how the songs kind of find their way. So the, the pre-production, I, I always, uh, I'll do a small demo or whatever of songs that I write, which is very few and far between. I'm not, I like Andy Gullahorn. He said something one time. He said, you know, I, I go to these workshops and I tell people, you know, write every day. I don't, I think he said, I don't write every, every day. Yeah. And I'm like that. I don't write every day. Um, I think about songwriting all the time. I think yeah. about topics and I have a notepad on my phone that I type, you know, here's an idea and I may get back to it. And sometimes I go back and look at it and I'm like, what, what was I thinking there? Uh. But, um, so I started writing these songs and, uh, it really started out with, there's a song on the record called the man I thought, or, uh, I, I wish that I was him. So, so we're in a, we're a blended family. And so as a, as a father of two girls, and I don't have any biological children of my own. I knew that when we got married, I made a decision not to, um, I saw, I saw so many of my friends that were in blended families and I saw the hatred they had for their, their step parent, mother, father. Hatred is a strong word, probably dislike, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because they saw the favoritism. Because they, they would have a kid together, yeah. and then you 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 know you're naturally going to, whether you realize it or not, you're going to be inclined to love a child that has your attributes and looks like you and acts like you and uh, in good and bad ways, but is part of your flesh. And so I took that out of the. I purposely prayed about it and took that out of the equation because I felt like that all the love that I would have for those for my own child, I would want to give to them. And so over the years, I would watch my oldest daughter with her father, and he and I have a great relationship. And I and I, as I was writing the song, I thought, these are all the things that I'm gonna I'm, I'm missing. I've missed all these years. I've missed all of these things. These phone calls that I get to listen to them have, and she laughed, and she would tell him I love you, and he'd say I love you, and she'd say I love you to the moon and back. And and I don't know if I'll ever be able to encompass what that kind of love is. song down for a year and a half and didn't finish it and I and I was scared to finish because I didn't want to screw it up and I finally picked it up and started finished it and uh, then I started finding these writing these other songs just things that I would think about over the, the course of three years that had happened and so when we when I what went into the record was basically there were five pivotal moments in my life in that those three years that changed the way I looked at myself as a songwriter as a husband as a father too mm-hmm. And as a believer. And so going to that record, it was extremely deep and personal making that record because it's the first time in my life I was really sharing and telling people, this is what's going on. And I don't know if you're going to relate or not, but I got to tell somebody. Mm-hmm. And so I finally resigned myself. I said, okay, I'm going to, um, 
I'm going to launch the campaign. I just prayed about it. I said, okay, God, if you want this to happen, then, you know, you'll provide. And mm. I think he said, I think Jimmy said, the last thing he told me was, if it's God's will, it's God's bill kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, that's, uh, that's where uh, that's where we'll, you know. And so I launched the campaign, and God was very faithful. He was extremely mm. faithful. Even in my moments of, of stress and and unbelief, God was extremely faithful. And yeah. we went into the studio, and I and I had no preconceived notions. I said, whatever sticks. There's nothing off limits except for I have one rule. The songs cannot be hokey. Mm. They cannot sound hokey. I said, other than that, we're just going to go with it. That's the first time I've ever heard uh, um, that being the rule of an album. The songs cannot be. I mean, I'm sure that's you know, you, you, sort of an unspoken thing. But you know but what? Like, I, yeah, I love that. That was your. That's like this is the rule that we're gonna that we're gonna judge everything by the hokey scale. And, yes, and it has but, to but, pass the test. I love yeah, it. But I it's it's kind it. of one of those things where it's like I don't want them to be forgettable. Yeah, I don't want it to be white noise because it can yeah. be production can be white noise yeah, totally. and you lose the lyrical content I want these songs to be able to translate when I go and play with the, just an acoustic guitar yeah. that you still that either it's the same resonance or it's so much deeper yeah and so that was that was the rule of thumb was it cannot be cheesy it cannot be hokey and, and I would check him like and, yeah. and I would say we'd be listening back I said okay what are the thoughts he goes I'm telling you by the time we finish this record I don't think it's going to be that Mm -hmm. I, I'm almost positive it's not going to be. He goes, and if it is, we'll we'll scrap it and start over. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's great. So I mean, that was it was it was a really really great experience, and I wanted yeah. for me, I didn't get to hardly document anything video wise with the last record and this one. I was extremely intentional. I wanted those memories for myself, mm. and to to remind me of God's faithfulness that you know, hey, you got to do this only because of God's grace. Mm. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so now that the songs are kind of out in the world, mm -hmm. but I mean, both the, the recordings of them, but also you've had the chance to, you know, perform these songs in front of, um, audiences has, have you seen that happen? Have you seen the songs? Um, cause you said this was like some of the most personal songwriting that you've, that you've put down. Mm -hmm. Have, have you seen it resonate in people's lives? Deeper than I could have ever imagined. Wow. Um, uh, I mean, just the, just the depth. Because you write a, for instance, you write a song, I Wish That I Was Him, and it's about, uh, it's about blended families. <laughs> oh, God. I did a show. I, did, I played it uh, at Eddie's Attic down in Atlanta one time. <laughs> and I had this, I had this, these uh, young, you know, and I'm, I'll be 40 this year, and, you know, you don't think anybody young from it. Uh, resonate with yeah. me. And I had these young guys come up to me and they're just like, tears in their eyes, just like, oh my gosh, that song just floored me. And I had this girl, this girl come over and she said, I don't have a stepdad, but I want one now. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But it was just like, to have somebody, that's, to have... That's so sweet. So, that's just the sweetest. And, uh, but, you know, you have people that relate to those songs. And, you know, and, and for me, I'm like, how is that even possible? And I asked my mom, I said, how is that possible? And she said, because you're being honest. And everybody can, you know, regardless if it's their specific story, there's something they're going to take away from there. And I said, so all these years I was scared to be honest. And it's like, that. those are the most life-giving songs I, I think that I have. I mean, the, the last record, are, there's some life-giving songs, but they're not my stories. Mm. Uh, they're not wholly any of mine. And um, 
but I had a guy from the UK uh, send me a message through uh, through Facebook, and he has a magazine he wanted to interview about the record. I'm like, how did you find about the record? Do I have an, a fan base, yeah. an untapped fan base in the UK that yeah. I don't know about? And uh, he sent me a he sent me. I was eating dinner one night. My wife and my daughters we were at a restaurant one night, and um, he sent me a message and he said, "I want you to understand something." He said that song. I wish that I was him. He said, really, really touched me. He said, I have a stepson who's nine, and I have a, a another son who's three. And he said, I love them more than anything. And he said, in the pain that you talk about in that song, he said, it's although it makes me cry every time I listen to it, he said, it uplifts me. Hmm. And the unsolicited, you know, because your mom's going to tell you she likes what you do because she's yeah. your mom. Yeah. But when someone who is unsolicited, who doesn't have to be kind, mm-hmm reaches out to me that means so much i think you and i talked before when we were having lunch um one of the bigger things that i've struggled with over the last three years is is not that god loves me but did he like me does he really like me mm. or does he just tolerate me yeah and a lot of that is based on i think we live in such a results driven life um society that when things don't work out the way I, I hoped them would, well, God must be mad at me, or he must be disappointed. What did I do wrong? Yeah. When that's not the lesson and that's not the goal. Yeah. And he's, I think a lot of times he's just teaching me to slow down mm. and understand that every, every, every time I have the opportunity to spend time in front of a, a person or people and share songs and share the, the, the hurts and the, and the things that God is, is, is walking me through, I think... Those are the moments, and that's the point of the whole, of, of it all. That's the reason why God allowed me to be able to do this, is to be able to get in front of one person or two people or 100 people or 30, and God is able to um, use those small moments to show people just a tiny sliver of, of the extreme amount of grace that he has just absolutely just lavished on us. Mm. And to be able to be part of that and him to allow me to be a part of that, as broken as I am, um, is extremely humbling. Oh, yeah. As you can tell, we're having a blast talking with Anthony Quails. And we are going to continue the conversation after this break because, uh, yep, he's our VIP guest all hour long. And we've got a lot more to dig into. In fact, we're going to talk more about his latest album, The Man I Thought I'd Never Be. And we're going to dig into some interesting topics, including how public metrics like Spotify streams and things like that affect people's artistry and even the way people consume music. Some good stuff coming up. And a quick announcement for you, because we are busy behind the scenes putting together our biggest music party we've ever thrown. White Owl Music Fest is coming Memorial Weekend just outside of Nashville. It's going to be an an all-outdoor, socially distanced music fest on May 29th. And including live performances from, get this, Jars of Clay, Sandra McCracken, Taylor Linhart, Andrew Osenga, Royce Lovett, Brothers McClurg, and over a half dozen others. Yes, amazing. And if you can come the whole weekend, we have a VIP weekend experience for that Saturday, Sunday, Monday 
of Memorial Weekend with some extra private concerts, meals together, uh, open mic time, game shows, so much going on. It's going to be a ton of fun. And you can get all the info on tickets, registration, all of that is at whiteowlmusicfest.com. We hope you will be there. We already have people coming from 23 different states. So people are coming from far and wide. It's going to be a blast. And we hope to see you there. WhiteOwlMusicFest.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. All right, we'll be right back with more with our conversation with singer-songwriter Anthony Quayles next. This UTR Media Podcast is sponsored by the latest full-length album by singer-songwriter Rachel Wilhelm. Requiem by Rachel Wilhelm is a collection of songs of lament and grief and ultimately the hope of resurrection, written during the 2020 quarantine. Requiem by Rachel Wilhelm is streaming now on Spotify, Apple Music, and digital downloads are at Bandcamp. Also, check out UTR's interview with Rachel at utrmedia.org. This UTR Media Podcast is sponsored by the new Kickstarter campaign for the sophomore album by the Jen Miller Music Collective. Yes, the Holy Spirit speaks while you're already asleep. The Architect will be a full-length studio album of songs focused on hope and encouragement for those facing tough times. The campaign closes on April 24th, so get involved before it's too late. Search the Jen Miller Music Collective on kickstarter.com or click on the link in today's show notes. Let's dive right back into the second half of our conversation with singer-songwriter Anthony Quayles here on today's Green Room Door. I'm Dave Trout. Glad you're with us. And before we dive into the conversation, let's listen to a little bit more of Anthony's music. This is the closing track of his 2020 album, The Man I Thought I'd Never Be. Here's a clip from It's Okay to Have Nothing to Say. Do you tend to talk when there's nothing to say? Has it proven a difficult habit to break? And you know that confession is just empty words When half of the lesson is yet to be learned They say actions speak louder than words ever will If that's true Then it goes without saying In a world full of sound Is there a place to be found Where it's okay to have nothing to say Is it possible that we're just all insecure And the sound of the silence It's hard to endure So you say to yourself Time and again That silence is golden 
thoughts about the song it's okay to have nothing to say in 2017 part of 2018 <laughs> and i tell this story I, I really honestly found myself at the funeral home it seemed like every few weeks at least it felt like that and as you can tell i like i, I ramble <laughs> i tend to talk a lot um it's just kind of like just word yeah come out and um and you go and you feel like you need to say something and every i think everybody does that and you don't have anything to offer. Mm -hmm. And so you just start rambling because it's nervous energy. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so after about the fourth time, I pulled up to the funeral home and I sat in the car and I remember thinking, are we really gonna do this again? Hmm. And that's when, I, that's when I, I asked, is it okay just to have nothing to say? And so I, I approached it that way. Yeah. Which was, and, that, and, and the funny thing about that is it, I approached God that way. I, I bow my head, or I, you know, I'm in the car driving, and I just start pouring out my laundry list of things that I want God to do for me. Because, you know, Jesus is a genie, by the way. Um, <laughs> at least yeah. that's what some people think. You know, yeah, it's like right. <laughs> uh, it's it's and um, and I and because I'm afraid to stop and listen because I'm afraid He's going to tell me something that's wrong with me. That He's disappointed to the point where He He doesn't really even want to talk to me. Mm -hmm. But I've just in the last few months, I don't think he's—I I don't think he's as much concerned with listening to what's coming out of my mouth, but what's buried in my heart. Mm. And so I think the silence part is—I don't want him to know what's in my heart, even though he knows everything. Yeah. I don't want him to hear what's in my heart because it's awful. It's mm. awful stuff, and uh, because I'm afraid he can't handle it, or I'm afraid he's going to walk out of the room. But is it, what am I truly saying about about God's? his omnipotence and his sovereignty what am i really saying about that i'm saying it's basically me mirrored i'm god I, i'm 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 mirroring god's expectations and what who his personality and what he is based off of how i would react and so that was the idea behind the song was just like maybe it's okay sometimes just to not have anything to say i think that sometimes the deepest prayers that god hears from us is when we are absolutely sobbing and brokenhearted, and he, uh, and nothing comes out but tears. Mm -hmm. I think those are the sweetest prayers, and I think those are the ones that make him smile the most, mm. because we've come to him, whether it be at the last as a last resort, which most of the time it is. At least for me, it's like, well, everything else worked. I guess we can pray. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the, yeah, it's the kind of thing, and it's like, I think that's what he's been waiting for this whole time. Mm. I, I thought it was a great way to close the album because I felt like that. Um, I wanted to be reminded every time I listen and when I listen that it's okay to be silent. Mm -hmm. God's He's not gonna He's not coming after me with a billy club. Yeah, and it's not the pressure isn't on you. No, the pressure isn't on. Am I praying the right words or saying the right things or even like posting the right social media post? Gosh. You know what I mean? Isn't like, that a, isn't that like such a like that's like a it's such a rabbit hole. Social yeah. media is like, the, yeah. it's it's such a good thing, but it's such a damaging thing, especially, 
I'm a four. I'm an Enneagram four. So I'm the individualist. So I want to be everything but a four, I think. I think that's what the, but it's like we're, we, we, we're just sensitive and we're, uh, we're just, we're dramatic. And it's like, that's the worst. Social media is the worst for us because we tie, you check streams and that's just a lie. All of that's mm. a lie. Um, Spotify, it's great that people listen to music, but number of streams, that's a lie. And it's, 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 it's making artists believe that they're not as valuable or their work is not as valuable as somebody else's because of the number of streams. It is a, it is a visual representation of a lie. Mm. Um, when it could just be the simple fact that your demographic, who loves what you do, doesn't listen to Spotify. Mm-hmm. They still buy CDs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. It's a facade, and, yeah. and sometimes it, it can feel like a nice little pat on the back. Or, But if you put too much stock into that kind of thing, as an artist or as a consumer, it, it damages the artist-to-consumer relationship. Yeah. So... Anyway, well, it's 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 that adage. Comparison is a killer. I've been seeing that so many places where you will, if you, it, it one creates dissension in friendships. It definitely can, but in relationships, uh, it can make you feel as an artist. If if you know ahead of time this artist has a hundred thousand streams, it will make you feel lesser mm. than the. It can make you feel lesser than the other artist. Mm-hmm. It can actually affect your performances. So when you go out and play. If you're on the same bill as somebody else who has a lot more streams or whatever, you feel like, what, how am I able to share the stage with this person? Mm. It, it, it's all those things. It's a mental game, and it ties into all of those deep-seated um, um, insecurities that we all carry yeah. as artists. Does my music matter? Yeah. Does it, does it matter? It, it, I, I had a friend of mine I was talking to a, a couple weeks ago, and I was asking him, I said, how's your record coming? He said, all I have to do is book one more session, and it'll be done. He's about, I don't want to. And I said, and this broke my heart. I've known this guy for, we went to school together, um, grade school together, so I've known him for 25, 30 years. And I said, um, is it, you don't like the songs? Is it what? He goes, no. He goes, I know I'll go in and finish the record. And then what? No one's going to listen to it. And he then and then and then it kind of, it kind of, he opened up more and he said, I, have friend, I do these videos and I post these videos and I get three or four views. My friend, he has a thousand. He has fifteen hundred, two thousand views. Mm-hmm. What am I doing wrong? And I said, man, don't do that to yourself. Mm-hmm. I said because you're doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. You're mm-hmm. looking at the next guy in line, and you're saying, well, they must be doing something right, and I must be doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. When honestly, it's not the case. Yeah. Look at their fan base. Look at where they're at. Um, I don't tour like some of my friends, so it's pretty obvious they're probably going to have a larger number of likes on Facebook. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. It just means that, that Facebook gets to make more money trying to share the stuff that you do on your fan pages because yeah. it's all the algorithms are not reaching all the folks. So, uh, but yeah, comparison is an absolute killer. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So um, I wanted to dive into this. This is really the last question okay. I have, um, but it goes right hand in hand with this sort of artist and consumer or you can call them patrons or whatever kind of model of music that's kind of been growing and developing and i just wanted you to be able to to tell us how important it is 
for people to support independent art and really allow more artists to kind of create music independently? For independent artists, you don't have the resources that a label artist would have. Mm-hmm. It's just honest. You don't have the promotion. So how do they? How do you, as an independent artist, supplement the promotion that a that a, a um, that a label artist would have and the reach? If you're a consumer and you're listening to the music, share it with your friends. Yeah. Because what you're doing is you're creating and you're being the promoter for that artist. Mm-hmm. Um, the best way that someone can can really help. Um, help you get to a larger audience is share their music. A lot of people don't think that they're that them sharing at one time does any dent and it may not. But if you don't it if you if you don't do it it won't. It definitely won't. But yeah, you know, and go to shows, you know, especially if you like an artist. And there's so many artists out there that are just not my that uh, that are not my bag. I mean, I just that's just honest. Yeah. But there's some artists I love and I try to go to their shows because it's like I want to support their art and let them know, you know, hey, your voice is is reaching people. Yeah. Um, and I've told this, and I'll tell this to anybody. Andy Goldhorn is my favorite songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, at this point in my life, he is my favorite songwriter. Um, and when people ask me, they say, "Who are your influences?" Andy Goldhorn. I actually listened to him a lot during that three years, and his record got me through a lot of stuff. Um, and Andrew Peterson, uh, he did an article, I think, on the Rabbit Room one time, and he said, what would Andy do? I think is the name of the article, something like that. <laughs> and he said, when I'm sitting there and I'm, tr- I'm deep in thought and I'm trying to write this song, yeah. uh, and I'm over wordy or whatever, he said, I stop and say, what would Andy do? Yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and I emailed, he's, I've met him a couple times. He's just, he's just a really nice guy and uh, just a, a fantastic songwriter. Um, but I emailed him one time, and I, uh, I said, hey, I need to know something. Because I was just like, there's no way he doesn't have a tool bag of something that he's going to. Because these, there's no way he doesn't have some tricks or whatever. So I'm always studying other songwriters, especially when I listen to how the turns and things they do in the songs are so brilliant. I'm like, how did you get there? And someone break it down, you know? It's because, you know, imitation is the best form of flattery. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what, I, what he does and then bring it back to my tool bag. So I emailed him. I said, do you have like a tool? You know, do you have books or things in it? And, and his response to me was absolutely brilliant. And I tell people this all the time. I said, his response was, um, I know a song is finished when it no longer feels gross or false coming out of my mouth. Huh. Yeah. And I, and I, I mean, when I got the email back, I was just, I just sat there and I just laughed. I was like, that is the, the most genuine and honest answer from a songwriter. Yeah. No, I don't have a lot of tools. Of course, he's been writing songs for you know years, and he has techniques and things he's picked up writing, um, but I don't, I know it's finished and complete when it no longer feels false or gross. <laughs> and I, every once in a while, I pull that email up and read, and I'm like, so when I sit down to write a song now, I say, what would Andy? What would Andy do? Yeah. What would Andy say? Or how would he approach this? Yeah. Or how would Andrew Peterson? Or how would Jason Gray approach this? Mm-hmm. How are these guys that I look up to as, for, as songwriters and inspirations? How would they handle this subject? How honest would they be about this? And typically, they're going to be really, really honest about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think that's what sets those guys apart too. People know what to expect out of them. Yeah. They know. When they hear that that person, when they know us, when when I get a notification that Andy is doing another Kickstarter, 
shoot, I get on board. Because I know I'm going to get something that's going to be powerful, and it's going to be life-giving, and it's going to be, uh, it's going to, it's going to draw me into the presence of God, and it's going to meet me where I'm hurting the most. Yeah. I'll tell you one of the most powerful things, at least for me, is send them an email. Send them a Facebook message. Even if you don't get a response back, mm. send them a message and let them know that their art matters to you. Mm. One of my favorite artists and the most honest people, Eric Peters. Mm. Um, and he has been extremely honest about a lot of things. He did a podcast recently and this like, had me in tears. Um, uh, is is uh, I think he struggles with his place as an artist and he matters. Mm. His last record, Far Side of the Sea, is just mm -hmm. is beautiful. Just yeah. absolutely beautiful work. Yeah. Um, but I think that these guys and, and girls, they need to know yeah. that their music, their their art matters. And it yeah. matters so much to so many people. I think a lot of people don't know how to how to say it. Um, I did a, I went to this um, workshop recently, and um, I had a guy come up to me, and he had backed this, this project's latest album. And he came up to me, and I didn't know I was going to see him there. And he came up to me and said, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay, my wife and I, we've kept your record on spin for a month now. And as I need to tell you, um, I would have told you in a Facebook post, but it would have been too long. And he said, my wife's dad was, she asked me, is this record from, you know, whatever era? And he said, you have to understand, that's a huge compliment for my wife because her dad was a troubadour mm. and he used to go out and he used to play. So this is her music. Mm. This is what she does. He said, he goes, we have loved, absolutely loved this record. And mm. I told him, I said, I needed to hear that so wow. bad. I needed to hear that. Yeah. And so if you're somebody out there, I'll re repeat it. If you have an artist, if you have friends that are artists, they need your encouragement. Um, they have an ego. I mean, that's just the truth. That's why they're doing it. It's because they they feel like they have something to say, but it gets to the point sometimes where if you feel like no one's listening, you almost feel like just not even say anything at all. Mm. Um, I just have learned. I know how I tick. I know how I feel. And it's it's just, it's almost like keeping a journal of all the other things that, and reasons why you continue to do what you do. Yes, yes, yes. So true. That's really uh, one of the reasons why UTR Media does what it does. We want to be an encouragement to the artist community to let them know that their art matters, that it's connecting with lives, changing hearts. Um, and I so resonate with that. Uh, what a great time hanging out with singer-songwriter Anthony Quayles. Uh, a huge thanks to him for, for his time. And uh, you'll definitely want to check out his music, his latest. He has a couple of albums out streaming and available for purchase and download. Um, his latest one was from January 2020 called The Man I Thought I'd Never Be. That was on our, um, our larger cited list of the top albums of the year 2020. It was one that definitely turned the heads of critics. Um, and I think one of the songs on that album made our top songs of the year 2020 list as well. Um, so, yeah, definitely check it out. In fact, we're not done with his music. We are going to play uh, the full uninterrupted tr opening track of that album. Uh, the song is called As Long As I'm With You. We're going to play it in its entirety after we give you the outro and say goodbye on today's show. Um, Anthony is has picked up a new hobby as well. Uh, he is has become a podcaster. Yes! He has a new podcast called Songwriter's Pit Stop and 
coming up on his next episode, which releases May 1st, his um, his guest on that show will be the guy that we just talked about a little while ago, his his favorite songwriter right now, Andy Gullahorn. <laughs> so keep your eyes out for that and subscribe to his podcast for sure. All right. Um, before we say goodbye, a quick reminder that coming up in next month, the end of next month is White Owl Music Fest. Uh, it's going to be such a great party celebrating the return of live music in a safe, outdoor, socially distanced way. Uh, with performances from Jars of Clay, Sandra McCracken, Taylor Linhart, Royce Lovett, and a bunch more. You can get all the info on all the artists that'll be there, the costs of the tickets. You can get either a one-day pass or a weekend VIP pass. That's all available at whiteowlmusicfest.com, which, of course, we'll link to in the show notes. Well, we are so grateful for you hanging out with us. I'm Dave Trout, and this has been Green Room Door a production of UTR Media, an independent, listener-supported, nonprofit ministry in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and online at utrmedia.org. It's mighty fun doing life as long as I'm